for a long time, animation was just like, hire who you know. It's not really until recently that people started investing into creating tools that could actually help people outside of that inner circle get hired. I hate it when something that should exist doesn't exist. I really like bringing structure to creativity and not making it some this ethereal like, oh, only an artist will just happen to know how to sell themselves and like how to be seen. No, 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 that's bullshit. Hello, welcome everyone to Straight Ahead, an animation podcast where we spotlight rising black, indigenous, and people of color who are the future voices of the animation industry. I am Raymond Dozalanda, one half of your co-host. And I'm Yuki Okamoto Wong, the other half of our whole host. Our guest this week is Liz Liu. She is Vietnamese and currently working as a talent sourcer at Netflix Animation Studios. Would you mind telling us a bit more about yourself? Yeah, thank, thanks so much. That was one of the cutest openings to a podcast I've ever heard. That was. <laughs> <laughs> I saw. I saw that you you reacted to it. I was like, oh, she's like the first one that's Thanks, like Liz. was taken aback. So cute. <laughs> oh my god! Thank you for having me. Yeah, I went to USC for business of cinematic arts. It was like the only sort of joint business and anim- sort of film-ish program that I could find. Then I've worked at a number of companies, mostly in the development or current series department. So that's like giving notes on pitches or on shows. And until about, especially when the pandemic started, when I started officially getting into recruiting as a career at Netflix. So the way we like to start off on Straight Ahead is by playing a little game called In Between. We're going to give you two similar choices, and then you have to choose in between the two of them, and then let us know why. All right, I'll start us off with the first question. Who would you rather have as your flying best friend? Pegasus from Hercules or Toothless from How to Train Your Dragon? Oof. Oh, that's, a, that's actually a really good question. I think <laughs> Toothless, just because, oh. damn, that's Whoa. a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Not not a horse girl. <laughs> not a I mean I was a horse girl, but <gasps> Really? <laughs> yeah. The thing is I definitely was a horse girl. I definitely played horses. It was mostly cuz like you know, nerdy girls and horse girls get along, especially when you're in a small school. Mm-hmm. And uh I but I always was I was probably if I could choose between horse girls and lizard girls, I would be in lizard girls. <laughs> oh heck yeah. Oh wow. You're a lizard girl, right? You right Yuki? <laughs> I mean, I have a lizard. I guess I am a lizard girl. <laughs> more than a horse girl. <laughs> yeah, I'm more of a lizard girl, but I was a horse girl. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, we're already getting into some secrets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. The other day, uh, a, someone from the trainee program at Netflix was like doing a presentation on the things that they learned and where they came from. And they were like, mm. I started drawing on Neopets. And I was like, no, don't say that. Don't let uh. them know. Yes. Yes. It's real though. <laughs> no, for real. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of embarrassing stories about uh, where I started uh, drawing, Neopets. but anyway. <laughs> Awesome. Then let's move on to the last question here. Let's do it. Would you rather dream of what you will build in the future, like in Hayao Miyazaki's The Wind Rises, or would you rather dream of what has shaped you in the past, like in Satoshi Kon's Millennium Actress? That's such a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Both of those movies make me want to cry. (laughs) Um, They're they're real heart wrenchers. (laughs) That's, mm. oh. <laughs> pretty emotional just thinking of both of those don't movies. actually cry <laughs> now I'm thinking of it yeah. <laughs> I mean it's, uh, those are literally both of my favorite some of my favorite movies Millennium Actress is always my favorite Satoshi Khan really uh, yeah oh. and it's so weird because it's like not what I typically choose as like a favorite movie but it was mm. so moving I like I think it was just it was phenomenal I think in my own life it would be better to dream of the future. Mm. Mm. But it's so funny because in the context of those two movies, if I had to choose which perspective on either the past or the future I had, it would definitely be uh, Satoshi Khan's about the way that she was able to look at her past so fondly 
mm. despite how yeah. it was so full of strife. Yeah. I yeah. Whereas in the Wind Rises, I don't I mean, I'm very glad that he was able to look at it fondly, but it's also so tragic. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. I don't remember. Maybe I was watching a documentary of it, too. But, like, they were talking about what do you do when you struggle against, you know, wanting to achieve your dream and build these beautiful planes, which could be used for good, but were ultimately yeah. used for terrible, terrible things, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's rough. Yeah. So you're more of, like, currently you're more, like, thinking of your past, like, in The Millennium Actress, but you should well, be no, thinking no. of the future. I'm definitely currently thinking of the future. There's no oh, way that okay. I would be able to think about my past that fondly. <laughs> but i wish i could (laughs) so maybe someday (laughs) one day yeah maybe when i'm when i'm as old as she gets yeah well that was in between thanks so much for playing with us liz hopefully you had some fun there hopefully we didn't hit you too hard i I mean you did but it was good (laughs) i'm glad that you knew what millennium actress was actually because i was like this is, you know, most of the films that they watch from Satoshi Kon is like Paprika and Perfect Blue or whatever. Perfect Blue, and I'm like, yeah. yeah, and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh man, I actually haven't seen Perfect Blue, but I have seen Millennium Actress and I really enjoyed that one. I, yeah, I really, really like Millennium Actress. And for our audience at home, if you also enjoyed today's In Between Questions, let us know your responses. Or if you have any suggestions for future In Between Questions, contact us on social media. So Liz, as we get started, could you explain to us what you do as a talent sourcer at Netflix Animation? Because to our knowledge, that's not a common title, I would say. I feel like not a lot of people know what a talent sourcer is. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no, I definitely get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Even within Netflix, it's it doesn't actually exist on the streaming side. It only exists in animation. <laughs> just because animation can be a little complicated when it comes to hiring it's not just parsing through resumes it's you gotta especially with art and story you have to Mm. evaluate what the needs of the show or the project are and Mm. what they need from an artist's portfolio which is still not the full breadth of the kind of work that they do i guess i would say i'm something like a talent scout Mm. i find artists in the industry who aren't already in contact with one of our hiring teams Mm -hmm. and then help determine any sort of potential talent and project matchups. Oh, Mm. interesting. So how much different is that from an animation recruiter? Like some of the differences, but like similarities between the two positions? Yeah. So the, our recruiting team is split into essentially three roles and that is the animation recruiter animation researcher, and animation sourcer. Mm. Typically, uh, at other studios, I'll see a lot of people who are recruiters that do full cycle recruiting, which is they find the person, they contact them, they put them in touch with the hiring team, and they do interviews and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Because Netflix is trying to make like six films a year and like right, an right, absurd yeah. amount of mm-hmm. series, like the, the volume that we're trying to reach. I tell you, I've been in meetings where we're really not sure if there's enough artists in the industry actively working right now to fulfill mm-hmm. all the needs that we have in the pipeline. It is insane. Wow. So that's why we break it up. And my role specifically, in addition to finding areas where we haven't already talked to the artists who are there, like pulling credits and stuff like that, I also help shape the way we like evaluate candidates and how we codify that in data form. (laughs) So like when we're putting an artist into our database, what are the sort of keywords that we will be able to use later to find that artist? So like... Mm. What is their style? Is it more charming, which is like a little more Disney and that kind of classically aesthetic storybook Mm. appealing look? Or is it like Mm. quirky, which is a little more exaggerated, kind of ugly but cute, like squash and stretch it to a design that makes it both appealing and unappealing? Right, right. Mm, Like a Frenchie, ugly but cute. Yeah, (laughs) like a Frenchie. (laughs) There's no universal language to codify how we talk about art and story. There's a lot of different words that people use interchangeably. And also, not every artist knows how to talk about how they draw, too. So it's like Mm. we have to try to educate people on how better to present themselves as well as try to find people and try to, like, figure out the ways that we can codify skill and talent. So I find the people 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the researcher is typically the one who reaches out to them because mm. the researcher is in contact with the hiring teams. They're in all of those meetings with the creators and they work with them to try to figure out their style. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so they do like initial reach outs to the candidate. It's essentially a phone screen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To make sure that people have like the bearer requirements and also get an idea about what they're looking for to make sure that the project is even something that they would be interested in. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. And then the recruiter is who makes the deal. So like after those initial interviews, once you're getting into, okay, you're likely getting the role. This is the offer, what benefits you get and all that other stuff or deals with international visas and things like that. That's the recruiter. Mm. Mm. Like more of the technical, like, okay, we want to hire you at that point. Yeah, it's the deal making. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As a sourcer, do you just look at existing databases of like, people that you already know are working in the industry are you looking at twitter or so you know browsing artists on social media like how do you find new artists because i mean for ray and i we're looking for people to be on our podcast for example it's really difficult i know they're out there but how do we get to them you know that's one of the main things that i'm trying to make easier for people especially Mm. with my creation of the WIA database. Mm. It's all about taking the processes that I normally do and trying to put them into a filterable database. Because the way I do it, if it's for a specific show or project, it's like first talk to the creators about the look of their project, then look at their Instagrams and Twitters and stuff like that. Who do they follow? What are the sort of styles that they gravitate towards? Mm. Who are those people's friends? What does their art look like? How do I look up credits and look at people who have credits to shows or projects that are similar? Essentially doing like internet investigation of art and story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything that the artist can do to like make your job easier? Like, is there something that they can have in their bio or like present themselves online that would like make it faster for discovery? For sure. I think something that would help any recruiter is the more an artist knows what kind of work they would actually want to do. It's great that an artist can do everything from like storyboarding to background painting and background design, but in order to improve at the skills to really shine in that one thing, you kind of have to focus on it and try to get feedback on what you specifically want to work on. Because mm-hmm. the thing that we always want to see out of portfolios is essentially like more personal art. We always want to see what is your voice? Mm. What are the kind of stories that you want to tell? What projects get you excited? What's the vibe that you can bring to the existing team? Mm. Mm-hmm. The most frustrating part of it is art directors and hiring managers have a hard time guessing what a person is capable of. So maybe you love skateboarding, but most of the stuff that you draw because you've been hired by like preschool shows is like preschool production work. That's great, but Mm. you gotta show that you have this other passion that you would love to work in if you want to breaking down your portfolio and like focusing on things that you're passionate about to figure out your niche is super helpful and getting seen by recruiters and people like look at your portfolio and like remember it because like oh you're that storyboarder that's really good at skateboarding scenes (laughs) yeah that makes a lot of sense too because like i think yeah you were on this preschool show you were on this show with this certain aesthetic but like well cool you're not gonna be boarding this anymore you're gonna be boarding something completely different but i can see why supervising directors or art directors and stuff could have a difficult time kind of saying, like, okay, well, I know they can do that, but can they do this? Yeah, it is also really tricky because Netflix is pretty adamant about making sure people get paid for the work that they do. It's pretty common in the industry to do tests for shows. And obviously, you kind of need a test to see if you can draw in the style of the show. Mm-hmm. But that's storyboarding. You're essentially paying someone freelance and you should pay them freelance. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's why Netflix has gone to only paid tests Again, just freelance. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to know if someone can work in the style that you need to unless you just do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's great to hear that Netflix is doing paid tasks. Honestly, I think that should be more common. Yeah. It really should be. 
I know some people that have done so many like unpaid tests where it's like, I'm already working freelance at this one gig. Do I really want to spend a week doing this test or it's going to be unpaid instead of doing freelance work that is paid for a job that I might not even get, Mm -hmm. you know? So I can see that. But if Netflix is really adamant about making sure they're having paid tests, are they giving out less tests now? Because I feel like when it's an unpaid test, like they can send out so many. But are they now really selective? Like, okay, do we really want to pay this person to take a test? Like, how certain are we that they can do the work? So it's a good thing that they're paid, but does that mean they're giving out less tests for artists to kind of enter in? I don't know the actual number because while we were doing unpaid tests, we had less projects. Now we have way more projects. So Mm -hmm. even if they are more careful about what tests they give, I honestly think it's probably not to the detriment of people coming in. Mm. I think that if they were just able to give free tests at any point, they're probably going to be giving tests to people who are likely not going to have much of a shot. So now Mm. when they give out a test, it's like, oh no, we definitely believe in you. There's no one who has 100% of anyone's confidence, even if they've been in the industry for years. So that sort of trial period is just becoming more and more common, no matter at what Mm. stage of the industry you're at. Mm -hmm. Right. And then something I kind of want to like track back to because you mentioned it is you actually made this talent database for women in animation, which honestly probably was like a huge undertaking. So how did that come about and how did you go about doing that? It's funny. I didn't notice it until I started doing the WIA database, but I actually have created a database at every place that I've worked at. Hmm. (laughs) I started off at a new, which was this really weird job. We were essentially making it so Dragon Ball Evolution could never be made again. We were... (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Thank God, yeah. (laughs) It was a Japanese company funded by the Japanese government to support more Hollywood adaptations of Japanese content. So we would read and watch stuff that we had partners with, like Shueisha or Karancha or some other publisher, And then we would shop it around to development places to make live action adaptations of like manga and anime and would be that middleman who understands Japanese business practices and like present a Western version that's like respectful to the original because Japanese business practices and American business practices are very different. Western business Mm -hmm. practices are all about deals and like written stuff and like everything is to the letter in this document. Japanese deals are a lot more oral and kind of just like you have to talk it through and like not a lot is written down. It's more like you have to establish a relationship and a sense of respect before they do business with you. Yeah. You really take people at their word. Yeah. Yeah. I created a database for them to uh, handle all of their pitches and all of like the stuff that we were tracking, all the projects. I When I was at Cartoon Network, I at one point was handling all of the writer submissions that came into Cartoon Network. And mm. I created a database for writers so that we could search, oh, we're looking for comedy writers who have experience working in adult animation. Okay, we can type in comedy, adult, here are the writers. Mm. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Then I worked at Crunchyroll for a time, and I helped them create like a database of VizDev artists to help with creating development work. Mm-hmm. And all that led me to Marge, who is the president of WIA and head of Crunchyroll Original Animation Studios, to see all the database work that I've done and essentially recruit me to create the WIA database. That's so cool. Yeah, so I've been really in database. No, that's really amazing. Because I know like uh, WIA's goal is to get 50-50 in the workplace by 2025. So how is WIA using that database for animation? When I was talking to Marge originally about the database, Marge already had her own list of like 3,000 women from just, she just scoured IMDb one day and tallied all of the information she could find because it doesn't exist anywhere, one. And two, everyone always sends her requests of like, oh, yeah, we really want to help the workplace reach 50-50 women to, to men or underrepresented genders to widely represented by 2025 because at the time i think it was less than 30 percent women to Mm. everyone else and at the time 
also the graduating rate was like 60% women versus 30%. So because Marge really wanted to hit that goal to make a marketable change rather than just have a lot of talks about it and have a lot of data on like how that it exists and is a problem, right. you really wanted to have a tool that would help actually get women hired. So we based it off of this Airtable database that I think Disney has, mm. which connects talent to like their representatives and has this like really interesting map of where talent go and have been, but also tags like I was talking about, about their style or kind of like mm -hmm. their genres and things like that. The kind of words that you would use when you're looking to hire someone. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to create our own because it, it was hard to differentiate, okay, would we be able to use the Disney database? How much of that would we be able to own and actually be able to share with other studios? Right. Because historically, studios don't really like to share artists. They kind of want to like keep everyone in. But since <laughs> we're sort of straying away from contracts, it's like artists go everywhere, you know, unless you're at Disney features or like Pixar for a long time. It's like mm -hmm. you go to Cartoon Network, you'll go to Nickelodeon, you'll go to Disney mm -hmm. TV and you'll kind of jump around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little bit more project-based. Yeah, and I think it's nice to be working at Netflix where that is a driving factor of our hiring practices that we really want competition to be driven by like how much the artist is interested in the project and not necessarily like competitive pay and stuff like that. Right, mm -hmm. right, right. We have so many shows. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's great to hear. There are mm -hmm. tons of people who really want to be hired. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's really cool about Leah's goals. The first step like to fixing your problem is identifying it. All right, we have the data. 50-50 is not matching up the graduating rate to yeah. the hiring rate. So let's hit this goal. And in order to do that, yeah. taking mm -hmm. actionable steps. So that's really cool. Yeah, so there's a lot of this actual step process. The database is just one part of it. Right. They have their mentorship program, which they're really up level, essentially doing like a matchmaking system where you yeah. can like match up to mentors and stuff like that. I know that they're working on getting like a career center up or essentially more education materials about career pathways. Right. Mm -hmm. If you want to get into art, how do you become an art director? Here are the different paths within the art department or story department or production or what have you. Right. So there's so much information that I wish was more widely available. And I think that's one of my main things that I'm trying to work on and try to share is gathering info of how do you make a portfolio that gets looked at? What are the basic things that a entry level person would even do? And how do I make it so this is a job? that's feasible for people who maybe like me didn't really grow up with the idea that there were any other jobs besides being a doctor, an investment banker, or a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I hear that. <laughs> So that's really great. And I think one of the things that you were kind of touching about within this database and like, you know, kind of having identifiers for like, you know, quirky, comedic, actiony. So you think it's really important for like artists that have been in the industry for a while or like artists that are up and coming to really kind of identify what their style is, what stories they like to tell. The reason I bring this up is because there's also the thing that we also get told in school from either people at Pixar, people at Disney, you're just like people that have been in the industry for a while. The thing they get told were like, hey, how do I make a star portfolio? And they're always like, oh, have three sequences, have one that's comedy, have one that's action and have one that's dramatic just to show that you know how to do all three and kind of what you've learned and kind of like working with these other people have you learned like no that might not be the best way to break in or get in the best way is just if you're action lean into that make several action boards show that you know and you have a passion for this action or if you like being super funny make these comedic boards and make a variety of them yes i 100 percent agree with the latter part of that statement. I mean, mm -hmm. I get it. I think it's really important when you're in school to figure out what you're good at. You should definitely try to do a dramatic sequence, like try to do a sequence from a genre that you don't even watch, like definitely try to flex. But when it comes to how to put your best foot forward for recruiters to see, you really should get a sense of what do you like doing? What is something that you feel that you're good at and you want to get even better at? Because story teams are kind of like a RPG party or a basketball team. Everyone <laughs> has their own strengths. I like RPG party. I, like party. <laughs> I know everyone says basketball team and I'm just like, I don't know what a basketball team is. <laughs> no, RPG makes sense. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, you got like your mage. Maybe they're very good at like emotional like story beats. Those pearl scenes in Steven Universe, that's someone's bread and butter. Someone's like, oh, mm -hmm. I got this. Probably mm -hmm. Rebecca Sugar. <laughs> <laughs> 
There are other story artists that are just like, essentially they're animators. They can do like an action board sequence that has all of the story rolled into this, this an amazing bombastic sequence that'll like change directions and camera angles and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the skills that you need to be an amazing action board artist aren't always the same skills that you need to do those emotional beats. Mm-hmm. You really got to lean into like, what part? of a story do you want them to come to you for? Like just this scene comes up, how do you position yourself to have the samples that make them go like, oh great, they could do the flashback scene. They could do that one cool action scene. So that's the kind of portfolio that you wanna try to go towards. No, that's really great. I think that's really helpful. And that's something that's even getting me thinking about like my own portfolio. Because hopefully <laughs> I keep being on the project that I'm on and like hopefully other things come my way. But when I have to go into that job search mode again, I'm like, okay, cool. Need to reassess like what I want to do. Just let me know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll do. We'll need, we'll need you. I swear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but to me, it seems like you have such a passion for making these databases, but like finding these voices. But what first made you want to get involved into this kind of side of the animation industry versus like the typical creative? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. At first, I got into entertainment because I wanted to be a writer. Mm. Mm. Yes, my parents really wanted me to be an investment banker, and I have really great math <laughs> SAT scores, and like <laughs> I was in AP Econ, I did great, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I found the best film school that had the best business program, and they happened to have that joint major, and I was like, okay, let's just see how I go through here. Yeah, no parent that cares about a kid's education is ever going to say no to the kid going to USC. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't matter what you're majoring in, you could be majoring in sociology. USC, yes. Yes, and that is, that's, that's what I used. But at USC and in this program, I will not name names, but there was a really great professor. He taught an amazing class and he really helped me understand more about the entertainment business. He started off one class of being like, I think most people in this class will end up working on an agent's desk or like working in representation for a bit Hmm. because it's really good to like get your foot in the door, learn all the names of the big players, get a crash course on how crazy the representation side is and kind of like knowing a lot about how the sausage gets made. But (laughs) Mm -hmm. after that class, that professor took me aside and was like, you can't start in an agency. And I was like, what? Why? You told everyone else to. And he's like, you have too much of a personality. That'll go. And I'm like, <laughs> did he just like insult the rest of your class? I told the rest of my class to go do it. And I was just like, oh, no. That's so but funny. That's why I couldn't step foot into a at least like a representation side of things. Not that every representation place is like that. Okay, just no, for sure, for sure. It was just really scary. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't have it in me to become like a writer full time. Mm -hmm. I just don't find fulfillment in putting my whole heart on the line just to like communicate something with like a girl that feels alone somewhere in the universe. Like I love that, and I definitely want to do that. I have my own side projects. But Mm -hmm. as a job, I needed something that I felt like I was good at and was like helping people and was doing something that was more than putting my soul on the line, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) whether it be in representation or like trying to write something that sells. I couldn't Mm. do it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's also a fair point, too, because you're again, I can just sense your passion from what you're doing. It seems like you really enjoy it. You're bubbly and excited even talking about this with us. But sometimes your own personal hobby, something seeing you like enjoy is like something that doesn't always have to be connected to your work life. You know, that timeless thing of like make your hobby your job and then like you won't work a day in your life or like that kind of thing. And it, it isn't it's always true. true for everybody. It's yeah, not true at it's all. Not true. <laughs> <laughs> I think people who still like love their hobbies and love their jobs and do the same thing, it's still work. It's no, it's, it's, it's always work. It's always mm-hmm. work. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's some days where I like what I'm doing and there's some days like, oh my God, I just got to get through the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I can like what I'm doing, but if I do too much of it, I burn out. No use to anyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So something else I also like want to talk about. Could you talk to us about your experience working in development at Cartoon Network and maybe a little bit about what development department does and what your role was as a development department executive assistant? All right. 
This is strap in. This is the this is the legacy. This is the saga. All right. Okay. So I fell in love with development, with the idea of becoming a tastemaker, essentially. I studied a lot of critical theory. I like really wanted to know the intricate details of why a story resonated with someone. Hmm. I just loved the idea about a job being trying to shape the raw story into something that just really hits hard. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's what I thought a dev exec mostly does. That's not actually what they mostly do. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually two sort of sides to that role. That is like development versus current executives. Development executives essentially do notes and help produce the pitch and like the pre-production mm. of a project. Whereas the current executive does notes on the production and the post of a project so both the development and the current exec essentially represent the needs of everyone involved in those parts of the process they're like the producer's producer <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and it's honestly not a lot of power to push decisions if it goes against what the studio or the network needs and you're essentially playing like the liaison between all these different departments so that a show gets made. Mm. But it's like just the producer does that across the production. Executive does that across functional productions. So mm. like marketing, PR, higher level execs, finance, payroll, all that stuff might talk to development. Oh. So it really depends, but they're, they're kind of like a all over coordinator of communication <laughs> mm -hmm. oh interesting i was under the impression that development only works on pre-production but they like also oversee current in production stuff development does pitches and pre-production and then the current is when it goes into production and then post it got it yeah mm. so from the pitch to the show is greenlit that's development and it's like getting notes on episode bibles doing notes on character outlines mm -hmm. and scripts if they're scripts and kind of developing whatever a show needs for whatever upper management to green light that show that's what development helps prepare that's cool mm. Okay, so going off of that, and what you did as the development department executive assistant, you probably saw a lot of pitch Bibles, right? A lot. Saw a lot of stuff come through. Yep. Is there anything that is sort of like a common misconception about like what a pitch Bible needs to be, or maybe a common mistake? I know when I was at Cartoon Network, uh, I was an intern there, and we had like some meetings with basically a bunch of different departments. And the marketing department, when they were talking about pitch Bibles, they were like, don't worry about toys and stuff, <laughs> because we'll do that. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll take care of the toys. <laughs> Don't worry about the sellability of your story. We are going to take care of all of that. Please don't pitch to us your cool merchandise for your story. We don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're out of line, but they're not wrong. Like <laughs> The marketing department, the reason why they don't take pitches on a lot of that stuff is usually because they already have partnerships with who makes the toys mm. and they have limitations on what they can do. Anyway, I was super into development because I thought that that would be like the place where I could do the most impact on trying to convince people why underrepresented voices need to be <laughs> represented in content. Sure. Yeah. You know, like beef mm. up. Oh, hey, this story. Let's you know, try to push it through or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. try to push this, like, let's try to push this specific story through or, like, oh, let's add some different voices. Let's not make this female character mm -hmm. completely voiceless. Let's try to, like, right, right. add bits yeah. of agency somewhere. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that got really tiring. I just, like, I, I love that fight, mm. honestly, and I respect everyone in that fight. That fight is not my fight anymore. <laughs> <laughs> So you were right, but also you were right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a hundred. And I just don't want <laughs> my career to be about convincing people to care. I can't do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. But if I instead convince them to care with how good my search tool is, <laughs> that I can do. <laughs> but also backtrack back to uh, Yuki's earlier question about like, what are some of the misconceptions in the development room or with a pitch? Yeah, yeah, with a pitch. So... I think making a pitch is a great exercise, but honestly, the people that actually end up 
becoming showrunners are likely aren't going to be people who are like entry level coming into the industry who haven't really had a lot of time to understand what the process of making a show really is. Mm -hmm. The industry goes in phases. Sometimes they get really excited about new creators because they want new ideas. They want to like try to do something different. But ultimately, every single production that I've seen with a newer creator always ends up with the same issues of this person has never run a show before. And so they don't know a lot of those processes. Mm -hmm. So they have to like pair up with someone either who's more experienced, blah, blah, blah. Essentially, what I'm trying to say is don't be discouraged if you make an amazing pitch and it doesn't get anywhere. Mm -hmm. The most important part about making a pitch is just like getting your idea out, fully fleshing it out and thinking about like, okay, this is like, like maybe you have a cool idea about, I don't know, a vampire alien who lives on the moon. And it's just like, okay, I have this cool idea. Let's bring it to an executive. I know it's going to be a hit. Well, do you? (laughs) (laughs) What, who are the characters? What's like the overall art? What audience are you trying to go for? Who is this for? Is this just for you while you were six? Or is it for today's six-year-old? Like there's so many parts into making a pitch. I definitely don't want to discourage people from making pitches, but mm-hmm. it's good to get the experience working in a show and knowing about how the physical process of production works how long it takes for shows to get made, what people you need to bring on to that. And once you have all that information, you can always like improve on your pitch. You can keep mm-hmm. improving on it for as long as you want. And then once you get to a point where you've pitched it around and it's the most condensed part as it could be, make another one. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's hard to talk about the pitch process because mm-hmm. it is a very grueling process. I don't want to sugarcoat it for people being like, just say your voice and you're going to get heard. It's hard. Like, mm-hmm. it's, It's really hard. There's a lot of rejection and there's a lot of stepping outside of yourself to try to see if a note that you get from an executive is something that will really help your message get across or if it's just something that they think is going to be popular right now, which who knows if Mm -hmm. it's not. Mm-hmm. But I think that's super helpful to keep in mind as well. It's like you sometimes do need the experience of working on a production to kind of know the pitfalls, the limitations, also kind of like the ins and outs, because I would eventually love to pitch a show myself. And like right now I'm taking the time on the production I'm on to kind of learn stuff that I didn't understand before coming into it. Like I'm working on a 3D show right now and almost every meeting I'm kind of learning about, okay, this is what we can do in 3D and this is what we can't do in 3D. And sometimes even when I'm boarding, I'm like looking at the technical director like, can I do this? And he, he, he like looks at me, he's like, just not just head or he's like almost like the whole like thumbs up and thumbs down (laughs) but yeah i'm learning about that in 3d but i also love to eventually work on a 2d show and see like okay now what are the limitations of a 2d show what are the things that i was able to do in 3d but can in 2d and vice versa and kind of see that kind of thing so i think you bring up a very good point is that like your idea could be super super amazing super great but when you put in the position and you don't know the ins and outs it can be a hard fall it's a really hard sell for a development executive to put their neck on the line for a green creator even if their idea is amazing Mm -hmm. so when it comes to what makes an amazing idea i think that that's extremely subjective you could have a have a bunch of hours on that but i will say that while i was at cartoon network the thing that stood out the most there was just the creator is going to have the hardest time pushing their idea through the rigmarole of getting a show made They have to believe in it and have an idea that's so specific to them, something that they really need to communicate and that the development executive can trust that they are the best person for that job before they'll agree to get on the development train with them. Mm -hmm. So it's like, whatever you make, just make sure that it's yourself that you're putting out there. And like, you can talk about why it's important to you. You don't have to just be like, this is what boys will like. This is what girls will like. No, it's just... (laughs) Just (laughs) your experience, why you're the person to tell this story. That's really important to development executives. Mm. Oh, that's really good that's successful advice Jay Hasri Johnny has told me as well is that like because I have ideas of pitching my own thing he was somebody that I reached out to because I know he had something in development but yeah he gave me that advice of like I have to for example I'm really into like luchadors let's say if I was pitching Sol Naciente to be an actual like TV series it's like okay cool why am I the specific person to tell this story about luchadors and parental relationships like why should it be me and why not like as much as I love him and he's super great but like I, I mean I mind but like I'd also be like a blessing but like Jorge Gutierrez we can just get Jorge Gutierrez to tell the story <laughs> He's told that story. He's all right. Jorge Gutierrez is fine. 
<laughs> no, I love it. He's like, he's like, me and my favorite. But like, yeah, like, he's why, so why you and not him? And I just got to find out a reason why. <laughs> it can't always be him, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. it shouldn't. Mm-hmm. He has one perspective. Mm-hmm. You have a completely different one. Mm-hmm. Don't let just because someone else would be able to be good at something that you want to make should stop you from making your own pitch. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And something I also want to get into is because it really does seem like you have this passion for that. And you're really trying to be more inclusive and trying to hire more people of diverse voices, trying to bring in more people, trying to discover and kind of like guide other people to discover these voices of color. But for yourself, do you see many people that look like you in your position that are trying to help others of color? Yeah, it's really great to see it, but especially at my team at Netflix, which is huge. I really love to be able to look around and not be the only person of color in the room. Mm. I mm-hmm. definitely have had that experience many times and I don't feel that at Netflix. And just in general these days, when I look at a panel, I'm not always being like, where are the women? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Why is there just a bunch of white guys? <laughs> yeah. And especially for you, because a good portion of your career was in development before kind of moving into this talent sorcerer kind of role. But like, I'm assuming in development, it's just a bunch of older white gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, I I wouldn't say that's completely true, but there definitely is a majority of them in senior level roles because Mm -hmm. that used to be the only people that could get those roles. So we're still fighting against Honestly, I think we're fighting against history. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's not that there's a bunch of people at the top being like, we don't want them to come in. Like, don't (laughs) let them take our (laughs) It's not that. So we'll have leadership roles come up and we're like, okay, great. Who's, let's, let's look somewhere different. Let's bring in a person of color. Let's bring in someone who can bring a new perspective. And they've been historically stopped from being able to have some of these privileges. So they're not like the most experienced candidate for that role. And Mm -hmm. you can't also not hire someone because they're a white dude. Like, that's also not right. Right. So you have to balance both, like, finding people that haven't been able to have the spotlight, but also educate people who are, like, almost ready and give them the shot to get that experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's, like, such a balance uh, right now. But what's really nice is I have seen a lot of demand for people to be more inclusive and diverse mm-hmm. in hiring, which is, which is great. I love seeing that people want it. Totally. So for yourself, is there anything that you're also trying to achieve as far as like finding these new talents? I really want it to be easier to understand both how to evaluate art and how to market yourself or like whether art or story so right now, it just feels like a lot of that decision-making process is, like, obfuscated by, like, representation and, like, these deals and legalese and, like, all this other stuff when really, for a long time, animation was just, like, no one cared about it. It was in the corner. It takes forever. The schedules are so, so back-to-back. Just hire who you know. That was the case for a lot of animation hiring. And... It's not Mm -hmm. really until recently that people started investing into creating tools that could actually help people outside of that inner circle get hired. So I really want to get to a place where I can talk about how to look at art and also how to talk about your own art, Mm. promote yourself. So it doesn't have to be people like me looking for people and trying to teach people how to talk about their art and telling them what's good about it. It's like, if you could do it, do it. I'll find something else to do. (laughs) (laughs) I hate it when something that should exist doesn't exist. I really like bringing structure to creativity and not Mm. making it some Mm. this ethereal, like, oh, only an artist will just happen to know how to sell themselves and like how to be seen. No, 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 no. That's Mm -hmm. bullshit. That's just privilege. Like, Mm -hmm. so yeah i want to get to a point where i can be actively giving back all of the knowledge that i've learned from just like being in development being in hiring Mm -hmm. just so that 
all of that process is more transparent and we keep getting closer and closer to like, what project do you want to work on? (laughs) Just can go Mm -hmm. work on it. You have the tools to get there. Oh, that's great. And I think you're in a very amazing role. And even when you were in development, that was still like a very amazing role. And you're receiving kind of your education at like USC and that degree in business and cinematic arts. Did that education help you in kind of your career path? And is that kind of degree kind of necessary or helpful for somebody to kind of enter your field of work as well so they can also help bring up these underrepresented voices? Absolutely, but maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely in terms of it helped me. The first job that I had at a major studio was I was working in ad sales for Cartoon Mm -hmm. Network. Totally not development, totally not any of that. It's essentially just selling the advertising space in between shows on Cartoon (laughs) Network. That's how badly mm-hmm. I wanted to be part of animation. I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> sure, like maybe I'll... It was the worst job ever. Don't do it. But <laughs> I literally was hired because of USC. Like they just saw that USC was on my resume and they're like, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, re- really? Yeah. A lot oh of those God. roles... Oh, man. A lot of those just like, just get your foot in the door roles. Anyone can do. Like it's not... A lot of entry-level stuff shouldn't be, you have to have prior experience to be able to do it. It's just like, do we trust you enough Mm -hmm. to teach you how to do it? And that's the sort of stuff that I want to try to unravel a bit. I just (laughs) Mm -hmm. wish that the ways that we evaluate people aren't so superficial. So I don't know if getting your foot in the door will always require a degree like USC or something like that. But it does require being able to research and understand the industry that you're getting into and not just going into it because it's something you love. You, it's because it's something that you think that you would be able to work well in it day in, mm-hmm. day out. What do right. you like doing? Is it drawing character turns or do you just really like drawing monsters all the time? Those are slightly different roles, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Learning about the process is super key. So even though you've had five plus years of working in the animation industry, there's still probably a lot they still want to do. Do you have any future aspirations for yourself in regards to your career in this industry? Honestly, it's really hard to say. Mm. I think I definitely used to. And I think for a long time, I thought that it was normal for everyone to have a plan on like, okay, well, I start here, I'll learn this, I'll go here, I'll learn this, and I'll keep moving forward. We had our first pandemic. I I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to continue being fulfilled by just like helping out this cause that I love. Maybe something else in the future is going to change and I'm going to want to jump into something else. As of right now, it's good to know that the reason I'm in this is so that I'm working on something I know that I'm good at and I know that is going to make a positive difference. That's kind of all I have right now. And like in the future, I hope that I continue doing that and maybe I get better at it. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Create more databases. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, we are in the middle of our first pandemic. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Before we ask our final question, where can our audience find you? And is there anything else you want to plug? Perhaps a certain uh, meat himbo-based uh, dating cafe. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'd first like to plug the WIA database. Uh, we spent like over two years on it, both developing categories that we would need and like the funding and all that sort of stuff. So now it is being looked at by every major studio. We have like shopped it around. We are going to continue pushing it. We're going to try to add more features where it'll like feature artists and like things where it'll also be like a international studio database. There's so many different ways that we can take it, Mm -hmm. but you just got to put your name into it first. You got to register. You got to think about what you want to say or your expertise what jobs you're looking for, how you want recruiters to find you, and any sort of like information that can be put into a line item essentially (laughs) (laughs) that you can promote. And like, it might be small, but it is a window directly to recruiters. So I highly recommend people registering for that. Do you just do that on Women in Animation's website? Yes, you can do it on Women in Animation's website. And I'll also put a link. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll include a link in the description of the episode Mm -hmm. and everything. Thanks. And then, yeah, yeah. Where can we find you? 
you can find me on LinkedIn, on Instagram, and Twitter at things that will be put into the link. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, it'll be in the description below. <laughs> it'll be in the description. Okay, meat market. <laughs> <laughs> what a statement. <laughs> so something that my roommates and I are working on, and I'm just saying it so I can push myself to actually finish it, but we're working on a, like, dating sim slash restaurant manager where you date sentient meat so you can woo them to come and give their meats to your restaurant and the more meat cuts you have the more you can add to your restaurant Uh, my favorite so far that we have is like my roommate did some concept art for it and she did this amazing buff like dreads guy who is like our sausage coon and we're calling him Link. (laughs) Sausage coon? Sausage coon. It's uh it's the little things. (laughs) (laughs) The other day she sent me a picture of just like little baby and she was just like uh, the only text it was like baby back ribs and I was like oh my god please please I can't. This is too much. <laughs> oh my god. This Meat is market too will be coming sometime. <laughs> yes. Don't know. In the future. In the when future. When it if ever comes out, we'll also add that in the description box below. <laughs> I hope you dream of meat. I hope it. you dream of these meats, Liz, coming in the future. I do. Me looking like like the wind rises, just like a bunch of meat like flowing. Yeah, but like sausages and meat cuts, like yeah, just, in the air, in the air, flying into the distance. Yeah, so great. <laughs> and on that note, as we come to a close on the horizon of meats flying off into the distance, what advice would you give to those that want to pursue a career in the animation industry, but also in your line of work as well? Don't forget to love what you're doing, because I, I think the best metaphor for artists that I've ever heard was at a dance class. <laughs> a dance instructor <laughs> said something, the lines of like, you guys are artists. That means you want to communicate with others. There's something that you want to tell people. So make sure that whatever you're making for yourself does that. <laughs> Your job will be what makes money. You don't have to feel like if you're not doing your passion that you're doing something wrong. If you like doing it, that's fine. It's just do what you're passionate about and don't you don't have to always tie it with what you're making money off of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well put. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. And if our audience enjoyed our interview with Liz, please rate us and follow us on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StraightAheadAP. If you have any suggestions for future guests, please contact us on social media or send us an email at straightaheadpodcast at gmail.com. We love discovering new professionals and want to use this platform to boost these voices of the future. And finally, a big thanks to our music composer, Daniel Rodier. Thanks again for listening. And thank you once again to our guest who has a bright future straight ahead. Until next week, have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye.